The FujiCast is an independent loading zone production. It's Saturday, 28th of March. The FujiCast. This is the FujiCast daily during this period of what is social distancing measures or isolation or even complete lockdown for many parts of the world, of course. If you're new to the podcast, and we've had a moderate stash of messages from new listeners in the last week or two into what is usually a light entertainment magazine show about photography, well, welcome. Welcome to what what has been a a daily for for the moment out of what has always in the past been a regular show released on Mondays that talks about photography of all genres, social genres such as weddings, events, portraits, or or commercial and editorial photography, sports, and and the list goes on, really. Previous episodes include talking with Keith Bernstein, who was, um, for a time, Nelson Mandela's personal photographer in episode 43, the the animal activist and photojournalist Anne MacArthur in episode 23, and John Swannell in episode 18, talking about photographing the British royal family. Yes, we talk about Fujifilm gear and advice, as the name obviously hints, uh, but as the show has matured over the last year and found its footing, the, the Fuji cast has become more a community of photographers doing what they do, either professionally or or on a hobbyist or, or interest level. And it's that community feeling that encouraged us to make this a daily connection during what is um, a unique and levelling experience historically, of course. A, re- a reset is something that's often been mooted. Uh, for the weekday shows, I'm joined, as most people will know here, by my co-host Kevin Mullins, a documentary photographer and an ambassador to the Fujifilm brand. But at the weekends, it's just me with some gathered thoughts from the week, photographically and uh, and otherwise. Uh, photography is about the story. It's about telling the story through stills and now moving images for many as well. And we're, we're living through a time where even the most mundane of pictures of home life finds renewed ever more important historical context Um, images of people looking out of their apartment windows connecting with with neighbors at a safe distance of course Um, to find solidarity i suppose pictures of families at play finding um, unexpected new connections and pictures of quiet empty streets cities highways and uh, isolation and it's that isolation story that we're going to talk about today. Not not in a depressing, hopeless or dispirited sense, but by revisiting a story with a, a special guest who is not a photographer, uh, but he is a storyteller, both for television and radio, uh, who knows a thing or two about isolation. Uh, he became unwittingly, and I use the word very cautiously, a, ce- a celebrity, and certainly not within the genre of those we associate these days widely with the word like footballers and soap stars or that modern breed of celeb the virtual reality star no for our guest this weekend his reality of isolation was certainly not virtual it was the result of 1943 days as a hostage in lebanon held captive by islamic jihad or hezbollah but um it's an insight during this time of isolation for many of us on on how even during the most desperate times resolve and hope is such a precious commodity We've split it into two parts over the next couple of days. Yes, it's a slightly different style of show, though we we usually, of course, do have some kind of interview. But this one is is more personal, certainly potent and pertinent at this time. John McCarthy is my guest very shortly. First up, from the show's private Facebook group, um, which we'd love you to join, by the way, as a place of safety during this time for discussing everything photographic, no questions too daft. And via the show's email, uh, click at fujicast.co.uk, Uh, We asked yesterday on the show to hear from you about what you're doing as a photographer right now to show others in the community that the things are still happening despite these restrictive movement times. And you delivered. 
Dominic Witten. Hi, Neil. Hi, Kev. Uh, in response to your Facebook shout-out, here's what I've been up to. Um, I've been trying to do a print swap through my Instagram page. There's some good ideas coming up here. Actually, I've so far made contact with a lovely fella in Illinois, and we're exchanging a couple of images. I've been invited to take part in a virtual exhibition, which is uh, fab. Properly chuffed to have been asked. Uh, daily bike rides around my area at social distance, I hope, Dominic. Uh, keeping me fit, an opportunity to take the old photo as well. And you can see the print swap thing at at Boom in Bitten. Bitten, B-I-T-T-E-R-N. Would love to hear from any fellow Fujicast listeners who'd like to take part in the work side. Well, I've commissioned an SEO audit on my website, along with an action plan for amendments, revisions, improvements. Twelve years of muddling through myself have left a, a dodgy taxonomy, inconsistent use of categories, and some pages which rank really well. Apparently, my site does very well for Gretna Green searches, and I'm in Suffolk, which is hundreds of miles away, so not so great, and others which have tanked over the last couple of years. Applied to study for an MA in photography online with uh, Falmouth Uni, received an offer, can't wait to start in May. Also been keeping in touch with my uh, local fellow vendors. We talked a little bit about this idea on, on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, so keeping in touch with local fellow vendors, venues and photographers, helping each other and showing some support, and then reviews. Now is a cracking opportunity, says Dominic, to leave positive feedback for all the local shops, the cafes, the fellow small businesses that you take for granted most of the time. From our favourite pub in nearby, is it Aldborough? Yes, to the local accountants firm who just finished my company accounts and given lots of advice over the last week or two. Hope this helps and keep on keeping on. <laughs> P.S. I heard a sage and wonderful quote the other day. I probably mangled it a bit, but it goes something like this. Don't worry, it'll be OK in the end. If it doesn't feel OK, it simply means you're not yet at the end. Have faith, hold your nerve, carry on, and it'll all be OK in the end. Anyway, thank you, Dominic Witten. Uh, from, uh, well, if you go to the to his website, it's Dominic Witten with one T, dot co, dot UK. Friend of the show, Michael Schilling, actually having a break from my business has been good. Uh, there's uh, still all the back-end stuff going on, but honestly, I've had uh, pretty much the week off. The void has been filled with homeschooling, like many people, I'm sure. Rivki Lockyer, um, photographing my kids and also the impact of the virus on the area near my home. Of course, not everybody has the opportunity to get out and do stuff like this. Um, some, I, I have heard of some photographers being stopped at the moment. Anyway, Rivki's managing. I do a four-mile walk every day around a lake that's usually surrounded by families and kids. There's boating, a playground that's usually very occupied. Not now, so I'm documenting that. Chris McSherry, I've been working on photo projects of me being stuck in and around the house for two weeks as it's looking like I'll be mostly indoors for 12 weeks. Business-wise, not up to much. Working on a blog post to go onto my business site to show what I've been doing during this time and that I'm not one of those people who only pick up a camera for weddings. Murray McMillan, a friend of the show, I've been busy homeschooling and documenting the impact uh, on our lives with that. Um, Mandy Burton, I was lucky enough to grab some uh, photo backing paper and so I've been photographing the dogs practising, these will be your dogs, of course, practising lighting and messing with my... 100V, the Fujifilm 100V, um, in the um, in the garden with the kids and dogs. I've also done a couple of Zoom guitar lessons. Uh, Elke Vogelsang, um, fantastic photographer, indoor and studio photography with my own dogs. You have to look at Elke's work as well as Mandy's, as I can't hire any models. Writing articles for websites and magazines as well as an ebook, uploading images to my picture archive, tagging, and so on and so forth. Um, Ian Palmer, I'm a teacher, so. 
I haven't a photography business, but I'm away from business due to having asthma. So whilst working at home, I've been keeping a blog as well as homeschooling the children, doing everything else to stay safe and essentially survive. Photography is life-giving to me, uh, and it's one of my calm places. I've heard that a lot, actually. Scott Cassie, editing what will be my last wedding film for a little while and working on website and social media channels. John Sinjin Smith, trying to shoot random things around the flat. Kind of influenced on uh, by, by one Mr. LaRock. Posted them on here and tried to learn Capture One uh, 20 with their free 30-day trial. Steve Gemmell, I've been experimenting with producing some YouTube material. I know a lot of people who have started making, well, YouTube channels, um, their own podcasts. Um, great time to be doing things like that. I'm not sure, he says, whether, whether it'll see the light um, of day, but I, I'm not sure that that's so important. If you're experimenting and you're trying this stuff, that's great. Fran Corbett, using this time to get to grips with filming by documenting my family during the crisis. I'm going to use this skill to do some filming during weddings. Good for you, Fran. Um, Jarrell Gates. In fact, Fran's film we talked about the other day, just to zip back to that. And um, we must share that link with you. Uh, Jarrell Gates, teaching friends and family how to both live stream and use Zoom for our congregations, being taken up quite a bit of my time. However, I have a friend that has a YouTube channel, and we did uh, a lot of the grunt work to use a Panasonic mirrorless camera for his live videos. I guess that experience is what's got me assigned as the go-to for live streaming and Zoom meetings. Camilla Lee, I'm not a professional photographer, so no business, but filling my time learning how to use the new X100V photographing everything in the house but mostly my cat kevin bishop finally for the moment pics of nothing but the kids while working full-time remotely and fulfilling the full-time academic homeschooling schedule for my kindergarten and preschooler while mom works remotely full-time keep that latin going won't you uh, thank you for your messages to let us know what you're doing as a photographer there's some great advice in there as well which very much appreciate so then to this weekend's interview. John McCarthy was working in television in Lebanon in April 1986 when he was kidnapped and held in captivity until his release on the 8th of August 1991. He was the UK's longest held hostage in Lebanon, a prisoner for over five years. And he's used his experience and experiences to talk with people about all facets of liberty being removed and the and the physical and mental anguish of isolation. And at a time where many of us are in our own versions of isolation, whilst they may not be the exact same scenario, of course, John's story offers um, a hope as he recounts coping with a strange new world. I'll uh, speak on behalf of myself and Kevin that we feel very privileged that uh, he agreed to come on the Fujicast for a two-part weekend article, if you will, to share his story. I absolutely remember the day I was taken, Neil. Um, it was, I guess it was, it'd been building towards having to get out of Beirut for the, for the previous few days. And so I remember getting up very early. It was a, a wonderful spring um, morning in, in Lebanon. So balmy air, you know, blue skies. Uh, and going to the airport with a, a car full of friends, a regular driver we used. And I can still, you know, absolutely remember it. Remember it was a huge old Cadillac or something 
driving through the southern suburbs uh, of Beirut towards the airport uh, to get the flight back to London. Uh, so, and it, so it's absolutely crystal clear, I think, because I mean, much of the experience of being in Lebanon is crystal clear. I suppose I went over it again and again in captivity, but also it was a very new experience being in the Middle East, being in a war zone, all that stuff. Um, so it does remain very, very clear in my mind. And there was, of course, the, the irony that you'd chosen to be safe, to leave. And, and of course, as this was happening, as it played out, that, that car that stopped in front of you and, and prevented your your own car from moving forward. In your mind, did you think, well, this is it, this is what's happening? Do you know, it's, it's weird that when, as we were nearly at the airport, right, about t- maybe 10 minutes away from it, and I was already thinking, as one does, you know, when, when you're getting, getting near the airport or the station, you're, you're thinking of the next stage of the journey, and I was already thinking ahead to being back in London in, you know, four or five hours' time, uh, meeting up with my girlfriend, Jill, and phoning my mum and dad and brother and saying, you know, safely home, and, you know, going out, to the pub for a few beers and tell them what had happened to me. And so I'm thinking in that sort of frame of mind, quite relaxed, and suddenly this car pulls in front and slams on the brakes and the world stops. And I remember I was sitting in the front passenger seat, a couple of camera crew colleagues in the back, obviously the driver beside me, and we're just watching this car. It was a battered, I remember clearly, it was a battered old um, Volvo, um, a battered green Volvo, what um, watching it. And <clears throat> watching as the back door opened and this young guy got out, big burly guy with a, with a Kalashnikov machine gun, uh, strides over and stares at us uh, through the windscreen and then comes around to me, my door opens it and put, leans in and grabs me by the scruff of my neck and pulls me out and takes me to the car. But it's funny because at that particular moment, I suppose it was some sort of m- emotional, mental self-preservation. I wasn't thinking, oh my God, oh my God. I wasn't panicking. I wasn't thinking of running away. It was almost as if, it, what, it could not be happening to me, so it wasn't happening to me. It was almost as if I was watching something in a film, you know, a scene, yeah. a clip from a, a movie. And, of course, endless clips of endless scenes of gangsters and gunmen and car chases and such like. So it was like that. And it wasn't until I was in the back of the car, down on the floor with the gunman sort of sitting more or less on top of me, that sort of that bubble of disbelief burst, and I realised what was happening. Uh, you know, or accepted, if you like, mentally what was happening. And then, then I just felt absolutely terrified. Mm. So after that, then, um, what, what happened? You were taken where and, 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 and told what? Uh, well, t- <laughs> told nothing, uh, actually, for years, but, um, which is so mad. Yeah. But uh, 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 well, from, from in, the, in the back of that car, I was down on the floor, and I sort of tried to get up off, off the floor, and the guy banged me on the head with his knuckles to make me keep down. After a few minutes, the car stopped. I was taken around the back of the car and put in the boot. When the journey then continued and uh, then stopped, and we, we would, I was taken out of the boot and found myself outside a great big building, which looked like a sort of warehouse. And a guy came out of this warehouse, put a blindfold on my face, and and took me in, and then down a spiral staircase, which was you know kind of frightening, uh, and down a, and then and then along a corridor, also so all underground, and threw me into a little room, which was a, a tiny little cell, yeah. uh, and that was. You know, so suddenly I was in there on my own, as far as I knew, just completely alone in this building. The guy went away. Uh, and I think subsequently somebody else came back and they, you know, checked through my pockets again. They'd already taken my wallet and watch and passport and stuff. And uh, and then I was just in, in that room. And I was in there for a couple of months. I say room. It was, a, it was like an understairs cupboard, really. So yeah, it was tiny, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, filthy little. It was, you know, it must have been about six foot long because there was a, a sort of foam rubber mattress on the floor, 
and I'm only five eight, five eight and a half on a good day, uh, tall. So, and I think my head touched the ceiling when I stood up. So it was very, very small space and about you know about three foot wide, I guess. Um, little space and uh, a jug of water and a bottle to pee in, basically. And, and that would that was the, that was it for, for for the next I think nearly two months. Um, I realised that there were other prisoners uh, on the same. A corridor, if you like, in uh, presumably just similar tiny little cells. Um, uh, but I didn't, I only ever heard Arabic being spoken, I think. So, so I had no communication with them. And if I spoke to one of the guards, they either didn't speak or, or, or they didn't have, or they didn't have, you know, just a couple of words of English. So yeah. there was no communication. What was, what was the decision process then? Because eventually um, you joined Brian, uh, Brian Keenan. Um, what was the decision process? Did you think, um, looking back, of having both of you together? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think probably they must have been decided because Brian was kidnapped a week before me. Uh, he he was working as as a teacher, uh, a literature teacher of English literature at well, a couple of colleges, but particularly the uh, American University of Beirut, big, a big you know old institution there. Uh, and he was taken a week before me, and then I was. Uh, when I was taken, maybe they were keeping both of us deciding what to do. Mm. Uh, they might have been confused as to whether they were going to keep Brian at all, because he was, uh, though born and bred in Belfast, he was Irish. He, had, he was travelling with his Irish passport. So I think they thought, oh, this is this is not he's not the Brit that we thought he was, sort of thing. So maybe they were wondering about that. I, I mean, I don't know, uh, but obviously after a couple of months, they decided to move us around, or perhaps. Maybe we were handed to another group. It's, it's, you know, I just don't know, mm. and because um, obviously one was was blinded, blindfolded all the time at this point. So, the, but but to be moved uh, and find oneself with somebody else was you know, who you could communicate with was was just life saving immediately in a sense. Just a huge relief to see another human being in that predicament who you could actually look at and speak to was was marvelous but of course mm. it turned out that uh, brian was a brilliant companion for the next four years although there was a slight frostiness wasn't there initially from brian i mean you, you're a journalist the the irony of course that you've been reporting on his disappearance um has not escaped me there but there, there was, was was there a slight frostiness at the, at the start well i think there was a slight wariness I'm, i think um yes you're right i'd, I'd, I'd sort of got, gone with the camera crew although i wasn't a reporter i was i was a sort of field producer you know, working for a tv news agency uh, so i'd gone down to the the AUB, the American University, and gone to his department, and we, we found a little ID picture of him that we could photograph and say, this is the man who's just been kidnapped uh, or disappeared, and we assumed kidnapped. Uh, and I remember looking at it thinking, he's a very beady-eyed, bright-eyed guy with a beard, thinking, he looks he looks like a <laughs> he looks like he could be a bit of a handful. <laughs> anyway, then, you know, a couple of months later, I'm standing, in a, having just been moved, blindfolded, bundled into things by these armed gunmen into, a, into another prison room uh in another building and and, and there is is a much hairier version yeah. of that person with i think beard all, hair all over the place and the white the, you know, the beady eyes are looking yeah. wilder than ever so i think there was i think because apparently my first words he remembers this i don't my, my first words looking at him were Fuck me it's ben gunn and uh, and he didn't he didn't you know he was thinking ben gunn i'm not ben gunn i'm yeah. Keenan. who's ben gunn yeah. and then realizing that I was making some stupid reference to, to, to the, the wild man from Treasure Island, and uh, and, uh, and so he's looking at me, but he's also confused. And then he and then I said, then I went sort of very English. I said, "How did you do? I'm John McCarthy," and um, and uh, it, so I think there was a sort of a, a moment when we're, he's sort of we're trying to gauge each other, 
you know, we were very, very different people from very different backgrounds, which, as it turned out, I'm sure was absolutely one of the key reasons we got on so well together and, and pro- gave so much to each other, you know, over the years. I, I would imagine we're in this period of, of uh, in inverted commas, isolation, because I, I don't think it can compare at all to, to your story and Brian's story and the, and the other captors, of course, during that period that you've been asked a few times how you dealt with that isolation in terms of, in reference of what's going on at the moment. It, it's odd for me to, to compare what we're going through with what you went through. Are, are there any similarities? Are there any mental similarities? Oh, yeah. I mean, on one level, you're, you're absolutely right. Obviously, it is not, it's not the same um, at all. Uh, the level of, uh, of physical uh, hardship, if you like, uh is 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 not the same or for most of us anyway but then clearly if you get very sick and by, by sounds like this covid can be you know really really uncomfortable particularly the coughing and you know let alone the fever so that's important and also theoretically like you and i are doing now we can communicate in very sophisticated ways with with, with friends with colleagues to, to reach out to people and have uh, conversations and let alone with obviously family whether that's just through phone calls or uh, online using you know uh, you know FaceTime kind of uh, communication so so, that, so that's that's very different but but I think what is very similar is uh, the, literally not knowing what's going on you know moment by moment obviously we have a, a bigger picture and most of us if we're, if we're still healthy know that we can leave our homes you know for a little bit each day go for a walk and go and pick up the essentials from a local supermarket or food store uh, so so that we have that but we still don't know what might come next whether there'll be a further lockdown and of course what we don't know either is whether one of whether we um, as individuals one of our family or ex- extended family is going to get sick and all those sort of things are a little alone the, the whole financial situation for everybody you know whether we've got a job still or whether we hope to get a job back or whether we can work from home all those you know huge i think the, all that uncertainty is is very much akin to the sort of minute by minute day by day not knowing what was going to happen that the brian and i and the other hostages yeah. uh, you know were living with in 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 lebanon and that comes down to control it's an issue many people will be having right now the feeling of not being able to affect anything because there, there's no controllable to actually control and of course we as you say we do have that advantage of loosely being able to find uh, you know, take take some time out and also find some trust or some faith in the professors, the medical officers. But you had none of that. You had no idea of the what and when and why. So how, how did you how did you personally decide to deal with that? I think it was it was possibly not an actual decision. It came about. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying you really meant that, but, you know, that, that it, it evolved how we dealt with it uh, in solitary confinement, which, as I say, was the first two months. I think it was probably a matter of just constantly hoping uh, that I would be released, thinking of what, uh, you know, I would do when I got back home. I think, you know, I, I know that Jill and I have been, uh, we were engaged to be married at that point. We were planning to buy a flat together in London. So I would be imagining how we might set that up or imagining, you know, the next holiday or what I'd do when I got home and whether I want to, you know, look, look for another foreign assignment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so planning for the future, thinking about my, my folks back home, my mum and dad and brother, uh, and, and, and sort of living as if that was, it was literally just on hold for a few weeks that I was bound to get out. I think moving in with Bran, one thought, well, this could be, and I was always perhaps more 
probably in retrospect, obviously stupidly optimistic, thinking, oh, I move with Brian, they put two Westerns together, probably this means that they're going to release us soon. Brian, on the other hand, was a bit more realistic, saying, well, a lot more realistic, as it turned out, you know, saying, no, this this doesn't, I don't think this bodes well, you know, that they're putting us together, they're congregating us, maybe this means we're in for a longer stay, and, uh, and obviously he was right. And I think what we then, what you did was, you were looking at stuff that, you, you, obviously we couldn't change anything. Uh, we did bring each other uh, perspective so that rather than just having mad thoughts that one did do on one's own um, about what this all meant or that they were going to come and kill you and all that sort of stuff, you could then say, wait a minute, I'm thinking this and thinking this. They say, well, I don't think so. And you could calm each other down or encourage each other and above all, make each other laugh. And that was, was absolutely crucial. So you could then think, well, there's nothing we can do here, but we can, well, we've got each other. So what do yeah. we know? What have we? What have we got from each other? So then you, we'd started telling each other stories, and obviously we, it turned out we had years to do this, uh, and we would tell each other stories that we'd either you know read or heard or films um, uh, uh, we'd seen, uh, uh, and then um, and 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 then we then we'd talk about the people we met, places we'd been to, and that way you kind of brought your own world into this tiny world prison world, and I remember Brian said, you know put it very simply but very eloquently one day he said you know they they can you know just pointing at at, at, at our bodies and he was saying you know they, they can lock this up but they can't lock this up and uh, mm. you know i'm now tapping my head as he did yeah. you know they can't lock your brain up uh, and you can be free in there and i think that's what we struggled to maintain uh, with and for each other you know that if you, if you keep thinking this can change. There'll be something different. It may, the whole world may be different forever, but particularly you know, for, for all of us now because yeah. of, of the virus. It, the, the whole world may be different, but something will come. We, if we come through it, then there will be other opportunities, new horizons. So we'd be making plans for places, you know, over the years, the places we'd go to and things we'd do together. Even though, you know, in the back of our heads, we we thought, well, probably, you know, we we won't. You know, we always talked about being released together, but we knew that we really we wouldn't be and of course we weren't in the end uh and uh thinking right okay well we'll, we'll go there and we'll go there and we'll go there even though really we knew brian would go back to to, to live in ireland and i go back to live in london you know but the plan yeah. was we were in it together brian very much was and he was the pragmatist as you've just just suggested you did seem to be the optimist in that relationship i know i know that you both had moments where you had to be the optimist for each other but it, it appeared to me that 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 was your role, if you like. Is, are you naturally an optimist? Either that, or I, <laughs> I, I think I am. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Uh, well, I am. Yes. Um, or either that, or I, I just sort of can't bear dealing with with, with, with the grimmer things. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, with, with looking at the dark side. But the way I have to get, you know, Brian had the ability to say, "Oh, you know, if this was where are we now? We're coming up to Easter, um, and if if, um, if 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 you know, we were talking about, oh, how long is this going to last?" And Brian would say, oh, I think I can last till Christmas. And I'm thinking, oh, I can't cope with talk like that. You know, okay, maybe Easter's too near, but it's too, it's too much good luck. But I'll, you know, I'll work out a way of thinking it could be, you know, the summer holidays or something, whatever it might be. So I, I could only, I could only ever, I could sort of cope with a sort of shorter span, if you like, of, of captivity ahead mm -hmm. of me. Whereas Brian seemed to be able to prepare himself for longer. But maybe that gave me a degree of, of levity or lightness i think it won't be so much longer and it was just different ways of coping with it i suppose but neither of us were ever saying this will never end that that yeah. luckily we very rarely got i think to we had moments of real depression uh all, all of us that's this is including some of the american hostages we were with too um where it was just really you know you just lost the plot for a bit and that yeah. that was understandable but none of us i don't think ever really thought this will not this will not end you know 
we were luckily in the pre-IS days of pre-ISIS days of yes. you know people being mur- taken just to be spectacularly and yeah. horribly murdered. You know, so we assumed that they wanted us to stay alive and that we would some somehow or another we would be exchanged for something at the end. I'm hoping this qu- this question isn't too clumsy, but I, I, I'm going to make comparison again. Of course, there's no way of humanising. Um, this, if, if you like, hidden enemy that we're all fighting at the moment with this virus. Um, yet you tried, as the time went on, it seems, not to, to you know, demonise your captors. I'm, I've demonised this virus a lot in my mind, personally. But you, you didn't demonise your captors, and I wondered how that was possible. I think it was largely by observation. Obviously, the what they were doing to us was awful. Um, and to our families, of course, by extension too, just as much with, you know, they were all hostages back home in England, Ireland or, or America or wherever it was. Um, I think one recognized that most of them were very young men. Um, I, you know, I'd seen in the months I was at Liberty in, in, in Beirut, I'd had the chance to travel around a little bit with the camera crews and I'd seen, you know, the, the, uh, extraordinary damage that, the Lebanese effectively had inflicted on themselves during what had already been at that point a decade of civil war. You know, every building had bullet holes, shell holes, every every road had, you know, bomb craters, it seemed. Um, uh, and yet life, you know, continued on all, all the time. It was remarkable, the resilience of, of, the, of the Lebanese civilians, if you like. But I think it when, when we were, were locked up and we were sort of observing, I suppose, these guys, some one or two of them, you know, were mean mean men uh, and couldn't resist the chance to to bully us push us around uh, and beat us up occasionally um the majority of them and there were probably 40 guards in something like i think 12 or 13 locations i was held in over, over the five and a bit years i was a hostage uh, anyway most of those 40 did not deliberately raise uh, you know r- r- raise a, a fist against us or, mm. or, a, or a rifle butt against us uh, they merely would you know might be slightly heavier on moves to be for the security element or because they were perhaps anxious themselves but most of the time they didn't do that and some of them you know showed concern for us um you know and expressed uh, regret at what they were doing to us but that they believed you know, it, it was for their cause you know how, however well educated or whatever their, their their views might have been that was sort of where they were thinking and i think we look back on that and thought actually these guys are probably you know 18 19 20 years old when we were first taken um and that so that for the previous 10 years i.e from you know from the age they were about you know 10 10 or 11 years old i think you said your boy jack's 12 you imagine yes. his next 10 years now rather than yeah. perhaps being covid but civil war yeah. where we are all fighting each other on the streets if at the end of that he's then put in charge of an underground prison with uh you know with a bunch of people who are deemed to be sort of against you because of their governments the americans and the british being against the people of lebanon or whatever it might be you know you would expect that those formative years of, of those young men and you know, any other child might have had the influence of, of turning you into more of a, a, a brutalized person but they weren't i think by and large and i think that's why i came not to see them as sponsors yes i do look back and and you know, particularly for the leadership, hate them for for for, the, for what they were doing to us. And I think even the leadership recognised that, that 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 wasn't you know it wasn't it wasn't right. It was just the weapon that they could use yeah. in in whatever way they thought they were doing it. One of the things we're all finding in various degrees, of course, is how isolation affects our personal relationships. Living in close proximity, I and mean, I can't I can't, as I said before, even begin to compare the situation or surroundings, John. I mean, this 
this is not an eggs for eggs comparison, but but the, those relationships are tested during times when we're prompted not to go out. We can't escape from each other, albeit for brief exercise. But you, you were with each other. I'm talking about your relationship with with Brian now at this time, 24-7. How did your relationship alter during during that time? Oh, sorry, I'm laughing, which I shouldn't be because it's, it's, a, it's a bloody good question, a very sensible question. And I'm just thinking, thinking sorry, I'm thinking of, of one day, it, this was probably in the first year but we were in a very it was a very heavy environment um it was an underground prison we were in a small small cell six foot by six foot by six foot you know cube basically no no natural light whatsoever in that place and uh, you know strip lighting some of the time um and uh, i think i can't remember if we'd been beaten up at that point but i think we might have been and there was stuff going on around uh, with other other prisoners in, in this weird little cell box and it was freezing cold, and it was winter, and it was it was it was a very heavy, heavy environment. We were doing our best to keep each other going, uh, but I do remember one day I got really petulant with Brian. I don't know what he what he done, if anything, probably nothing at all. But I just remember, you know, we each had a basically there was on the floor there was this room for a, a foam rubber mattress against the foam rubber mattress. You know, one one for Brian, one for me, and I just remember sort of pointing down the line of, of the between the mattresses and then up around the wall and across the ceiling saying right Brian there's a line divided this cell is divided into two and this is my half and that's your <laughs> half and you stay in your half and he looked at me for a minute or two sort of shocked and then there was a kind of warmth in his eyes because he's a he's a, a really lovely lovely man very sensitive man <laughs> and he can be feisty but he's a lovely yeah. gentle man and he looked at me for a moment with concern and then he just couldn't stop he he just burst out laughing <laughs> because I was obviously being ridiculous. And I probably looked like, you know, like I sounded a little, little petulant schoolboy, really. And he looked at me from and laughed. And then, then after a moment or two, I just burst out laughing. And, and you know, and, it, and the, the moment, the passion, if you like, abated and, 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 and flowed away. But I think our relationship evolved to answer the question more directly. And it's interesting because... You know, you, you, you brought this up thinking of, you know, here we all are in isolation at the moment. And, and there were Brian and I and other people um, you know, in Lebanon, but also other people all over the world in, in similar circumstances now, tragically, um, uh, what, what that's like. But it's, it's interesting how those strange stories, yes, it's not the same now. We do have more opportunities now to, to sort of escape the, 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 some elements of, 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 of what's going on around us. But it's over the years since 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 being a hostage, you know, since I came home, it's been interesting how elements of that experience. Now we're talking about isolation, most obviously and quite rightly. But in the past, I've talked to to, or to groups and businesses and stuff about bullying because you know obviously we experience that what that how that works on people and and, and elements of confinement and, and dealing with sudden change and all that sort of stuff. Which sudden change, I guess, is also relevant. So it's interesting how elements of 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 a, what was you know an extraordinary experience but uh touch so much with our more general lives with ordinary lives and then particularly when we all find ourselves in something as, as extreme and unusual as as as, as the lockdown that not most of the planet's under but certainly we are here in the uk then it, then again something something of that old experience comes out and, and seems relevant and how we deal with it i think it, <laughs> you're right i mean it just being you know, uh, locked up together, in, even in a relatively, and, and certainly for benign reasons that we all are now, it's still, it's still difficult. You know, uh, because one's suddenly aware that you can't get away. You know, I'm used to working from home, um, but now you know my daughter's here most of the time with me, and uh, and I think, oh God, I can't concentrate so much, you know, because obviously she's trying to do her homework or doing her stuff or listen to music in the background, and it's it's quite strange how one has to adjust and think, calm down. 
this is fine we can talk to each other and work out you know if we are annoying each other how we how we can stop doing that but also then think actually this is great because i've got more time because you know to talk about stuff if we want to or take a break and reflect on things tomorrow john mccarthy talks about what happens when you emerge the other side from isolation and getting back to normal. Back with more of your photographic sharings then tomorrow on the Fujicast Daily and keep sending in your questions, both tech and non-tech, to click at fujicast.co.uk. Until tomorrow then. The Fujicast is an independent Loading Zone production. 